This event was recorded live at the 2012 Edinburgh International Book Festival. Welcome to our Science Meets Literature event. Um, we're here with our eminent authors, Ben Marcus and Charles Fernihal. My name is Jennifer Wilde. I am a psychologist based at the University of Oxford. And it's a great pleasure to be chairing this event today. I'd like to begin by thanking the Wellcome Trust, uh, who has brought this event together. We're focusing on the interplay between science and literature, and how science influences literature, how it's conveyed increasingly in literature, and how, importantly, literature is starting to influence science. And that will be one of the focus points of our debate today. I'd like to take a moment to introduce our authors. Ben Marcus um, has written a number of books. His first book, a bestseller, The Age of Wire and String, and his latest book, which he'll be reading from today, The Flame Alphabet. Charles Fernihal uh, is a psychologist and writer based at the University of Durham. He too has a number of books. His latest books um, are is the Pieces of Light, which is about memory, and some really novel concepts about memory. And the book he'll be reading from today is A Box of Birds. So um, what I would like to do to begin is have Ben Marcus read an excerpt uh, from his book. And this is going to stimulate some discussion about the interplay between science and literature. And we have some questions that we can ask our authors. First of all, thank you all for coming. And uh, I'm especially thankful to the Welcome Trust and the festival itself for inviting me to Scotland. It's, it's so wonderful to be here and to be able to have an event with Charles. So uh, I just will read a page from my novel, The Flame Alphabet. In the book, the language of children is toxic to adults. It makes them so sick to be around it that eventually they perish, so they have to make a choice about whether or not they stay with their children and succumb or leave their children and then deal with the, uh, the shame of having done so. At, at, in this section in the book, the narrator, whose teenage daughter's speech is sickening him, is trying to, uh, in the absence of any scientific solution, he's trying to troubleshoot this problem on his own by inventing drugs in his kitchen. Uh, I don't know if you've ever tried to do that, <laughs> but it's difficult. It's difficult work. So uh, his daughter's name is Esther, and otherwise I will just jump right in. It was early November. The drug trials sped through testing, and the basic anti-speech agents were released for free to the public, dumped into empty newspaper bins on corners. The drugs were a medical slush, short on real medicine, soggy little tonics desperate for vast strengthening. It was the wrong time for placebos, for liquid vials of nothing. When we injected them, they only stupefied us until we sputtered awake in a different room. Instead of healing us, this medicine seemed only to bring on spells of afternoon death, a rehearsal maybe, a warm-up. I rigged a lab in the kitchen. On my conscious nights, I milled speculative medicines designed to keep us healthy enough to hold our ground at home. Such nights were coming less often, but when I was able to crawl from the rug in my home office, 
where I had erected a person-sized humidor in which to test the inhalers, and when the evening was cleansed of potential encounters with my daughter, I started boiling down drugs. Esther was no threat at night. At night, she slept or she left the house, teaming up with the other underage weapons in the neighborhood. The children all go out and maraud through the streets, shouting and hurting people with their language. <clears throat> the lab was piecemeal, outfitted with equipment I swapped for at the science exchange. On the kitchen counter, I looped tubes between a trio of beakers, and I flipped the circuit to the furnace so I could plug in the microfiner, which pulverized whatever organic matter I required as ballast without causing a brownout. Working with no furnace made for cold nights, so I repurposed our silverware drawer to hold a stash of sweaters and socks, hats and whatever else I kept in a wire basket in the pantry. I had a separate handmade Valona machine for fats. With an induction burner, I reduced solutions of saline, blended anti-inflammatory tablets, atomized powder from non-drowsy time-release allergy vials, and milled an arsenal of water-charged vitamins, particularly from the B group, along with binding agents and hardened shavings of an herb dust I'd crushed in the mortar. The salted protein sheets rolled out from bulk supplies of medical gelatin. I stretched on the dish rack until they, were, until they resolved as clear as glass, and once they'd hardened, I cut them into batons and hollowed out their middles so they could be injected with medicine. With a cold reduction process, I isolated lead, quivering, gangly worms of it, which served as a jacket around the pills I fed poor Claire, that's his wife. These weren't time release so much as time capsule, health bombs to go off only when the exposure was intense, or so they were designed. I planted secret weapons in my wife, and she swallowed them down without a fuss. My logging was steady now. All these trials and procedures are documented. We told ourselves, when we spoke at all, that it was helping. Stop there. Thank you. Um, Shall we move on to Charles? Would you like to read an excerpt from your book? Sure. Yeah, I'd like to um, echo Ben's gratitude to the festival and, um, and to, to welcome for putting this uh, event together. With my book, I've tried to tell the story of a neuroscientist who is steeped in a particular view of mind, um, a kind of neuroscientific materialism. So this scientist believes that there is nothing more to her experience, nothing more to her consciousness than the activity of molecules and nerve cells and chemicals and so on, which is a view which many scientists, many, uh, most neuroscientists, I would say, hold. The interesting thing for me is that modern neuroscience is giving us this view of mind. It is telling us that the self is an illusion. It is telling us that the brain is a collection of separate processes that are all doing their own thing. You know, the left hand doesn't know what the right hand is doing literally. What I want to know is how does this change things? You know, how does it change a person's experiences? And critically, how does it change how a person acts? If this is your view of yourself, what difference does it make? So in this opening scene, I'm just going to read a very short bit from the opening scene, where my uh, neuroscientist uh, protagonist, Yvonne, is sitting with two of her students, Gareth and James, who are um, rather naughtily uh, trying to embarrass her by turning up to their tutorials in fancy dress. And she's so embarrassed by this, she's been saying to them, 
you better come up to my office, which is kind of meant to be out of bounds, just because I'm fed up of you coming in these crazy costumes. So we join the scene just as James has been complaining about the fact that she's been using animals for her neuroscientific research. I watch James slump back into the chair and push off his trainers. He's wearing a Fred Flintstone hairpiece and a t-shirt that says Big in Norwich. His lips are dry and there's a tender colour in his cheeks that hints at childhood embarrassments. His eyelashes are long and dark. A mole on his right cheek is the mark of a perfect arrogant beauty. I've heard this tone of voice before, of course, the slick automaticity of the outrage, the wince in his cheeks as he hurts himself on the words. No doubt the people who firebombed an empty storage room in the East Wing had it, took it with them to their conscience meetings to argue for a better world without cruelty to animals. But James doesn't seem the sort who would act on his convictions. He's just testing me, pushing on the edifice to see if it'll break. He wants the easy kick at the cruelty of animal research, but he hasn't the heart or the arguments to see it through. Like I say, in this lab, we're mostly using transgenics. We don't have to tamper with their brains at all. We let their genes do it for us. Don't you have any doubts about that? He stares at me, sensing a weakness I didn't know about. Sometimes, I say. So are they conscious when you're fiddling around with their transgenics or whatever? That depends on what you mean by conscious. I wish you'd look away now. I like to think I can hide it by speaking when I'm spoken to, smiling back when people smile at me, and maybe giving a little involuntary blush when it's a man. But then, out of nowhere, someone sees right through me, notices how I stumble over a response to a question, or leave a glance out of a window hanging a half second too long. That feeling of being centred, that X that's supposed to mark the spot of the soul, it gets shown up as the nothing it is. James has centred it, the doubt that it's, that's at the heart of me. It's like I've thrown open a door onto a party you can hear from the street, only to show that there's nothing there. I mean what you mean, Dr Churchill. I mean what it feels like to be alive, to experience the amazing qualities of existence. I'm not talking about neural pathways or bits of the brain working together in harmony. I mean what it feels like to be you, Dr Yvonne Churchill, age 30-something, possibly single, to be that person in this room right now. I redden and hate myself for it. Here in this room is not really the place to discuss this, James. He holds the gaze. It's too determined, its need to embarrass me is too much on show. But I find myself yielding to it in a kind of admiration of his guess, for his guessing the truth about me. He has me in his gaze, that cool, fascinating fixedness. Not fighting me now, more like what comes after fighting. You take it to pieces, Dr. Churchill, and then you can't put the pieces back together again. I laugh. I know I shouldn't, but I can't help it. It's a mid-brain reflex, some neural cluster buzzing some other neural cluster, and going nowhere near that mythical centre, whatever it is that's supposed to be me. He's blushing now, scorched by an older woman's mockery, and I can feel the tingling dread that tells me I've gone too far. He's hauling up the smile, hardening it, putting a bit of menace into it, a squeeze of anger. It's too hot in here. All the doors and windows sealed, and the electronic locks on all the doors, and just the two of us trapped in this moment, fighting for air. Thank you. The two books raise uh, specific questions we could think about, as well as 
more general ones. If we start with Ben, which um, the flame alphabet, this idea that language is toxic um, and that it's a disease, really gets us questioning um, communication. And specifically, this is a festival about books and literature and communication. So how would that influence writing, for example, if language was toxic? Or how could we modify language so that uh, it becomes fresh and new and we're not writing with cliches? We'd finally stop writing. <laughs> if it was truly toxic, it might just put an end to this thing of literature. You know, it, to me, it doesn't seem like much of a stretch to say it's toxic because language moves us considerably. It, it acts on us. When I think about the books that have resonated with me the most, I think they've had an, a nearly chemical effect on me. That They have gotten into my system. They have changed the way I feel. They have changed the way I think. There are certain people in my life who can say just a couple of words to me, I love you, I hate you, uh, I'm leaving you. <laughs> the words that would have an instant effect on me, they would raise my adrenaline, they would just completely act on me like you know, the, you know, the, the sting of, of, a, of, of a spider. And so I, I think that, that idea is just very attractive to me and it's true enough to merit uh, exploration in fiction. Um, and and that, that's what, what interested me in, in terms of, um, I guess, you know, kicking it forward into a book and, and seeing what would happen. The second part of your question, how, how can we make language safer to use? Is that um, Not safer, actually fresher, new. Uh, I don't know. <laughs> uh, <laughs> so we're not always well, reverting back to cliches. But there's a great appetite for cliches. I mean, in fact, we're very comforted when we've when we hear things we've already heard. I I, I don't think that there's anything wrong with them. Um, I mean, and if we look at the sort of let's say literature that might be the most embraced, it's often because it's not interested in forging new uh, linguistic pathways and in inventing new modes of speech and new ways of using language. It's it's in fact so comfortable with everything that's been said and felt already that it's, you know, that's the secret to its success. I, I think that there are always uh, enough writers, though, who are so fascinated with language and also suspicious that there's more to it. And I always think there's, what, what I love is that we, we know so little about language, about how it really works and where, where it comes from and how it evolves and also what we feel when we, when we hear it and when we see it. We really know, I, I might be corrected by the scientist, but I know <laughs> very little about that. And uh, I think it's, it's constantly being underestimated. It's constantly, we're, we're, we're always being accused of debasing our language on, in social media and trying to ruin it and disgracing it. And, but but it, the fact is, I think it's an enormous creature that we probably can't kill. I mean, we could all gather here for the few weeks of this festival and try to ruin the language. And I don't think we could do it. I think, in fact, it's going to outlive us. And, and so for me, I, I, I believe so much in its vitality and its ability to endlessly generate new limbs of itself that, uh, you know, I just feel all I'm doing is hurrying and trying to catch up and do my small part. I'm interested in that concept um, that you were um, describing about how language 
influences you on a molecular level, on a physiological level. And I, from a psychological perspective, I think the meaning we attach to language when we hear certain words, cliches, phrases, um, that, that meaning it evokes in us does create a physiological impact, yeah. does influence uh, our emotions on a molecular level. Um, so th that's a, a very interesting uh, interpretation linked to the flame alphabet. I um, wanted to move on, just staying on the theme of language, the, a question also that Charles rose when we were chatting just before um, the event today, but this idea of self-talk and the relationship between thinking and language and um, our inner self-talk. I wondered if you could speak um, to that idea. Self-talk. Maybe that's more a question for Charles. Well, I think it's a question that came up for me reading your fantastic book that language is toxic, but what about the language in here? Ah, yes. Is okay. it language? Of but course. there's stuff that goes on oh, in here that's that self-talk. Yeah. Uh, yeah, well, actually, in the book, first it's the language of children, but then soon you learn that it's, it's, it's all language and children are only immune for a little while, and then they run out of their quota and they too can't consume it. And the narrator begins to wonder what's poisonous and what isn't, and and why can you think in language if you can't speak in it? And it's, and, and soon he wishes he didn't think anymore either because he finds that thinking is more painful than speaking ever was. And his rather sorrowful attitude is that human communication simply leads to sadness. I'm sure people out here have had different experiences than that, but um, he takes a theory of communication itself that this, this deep biological urge we have to connect, of course, can give us momentary pieces of joy, but also lots of sorrow, lots of disappointment, and, and that uh, he, he then finds that even thinking has no purpose he can figure out. If he's not going to be connecting with people, then how, how can he even be doing that? So it's left as an open question, but it was, it was something that was interesting to me to wonder about through him as a narrator because it, it, I've always wondered how we would transcribe our thoughts because at least for me anyway I know there's some language in there and then there's just some you know it gets windy it gets a little noisy there's some static might be a couple of drum beats mm. but you know I, I, I still seem to it's, it's not like moving your lips when you read, but I, I still seem to use words to myself, and I'm not so clear always why I do that. Um, it's almost as though I'm suspicious of there being someone listening in. Yeah. <laughs> why do I do that? Well, do I, you do that? <laughs> do, you, do you think in words? Uh, definitely, definitely, uh, yeah. Um, but I also think that there is a thing, you know, that inner speech comes in many forms, yeah. and this is, this is getting into the realms of my scientific work now. I think your book traces a kind of shift in model between a view that language is about here's the stuff going on here in my head and I'm going to package it yeah. and transmit it through the air so it can be unwrapped in that person's head right. into something that's much more socially based, that's much more transactional, that's, that has communication at its heart. And I think that's where thinking comes from developmentally. We think a, because a we communicate. Met metaphor for literature. You do we see this in a writing classroom. Take what's in here and put it out there. We're, we're translating that, that experience we have. Often when you talk to people who want to write a book, they say, I've got so many great ideas, yeah. and I just need to get them out. Yeah. yeah. But I think, it's a, I think it's a dangerous metaphor, the idea that we are this contain, you know, an individual person is this container, the containing stuff that has to be 
repackaged, transmitted, translated in what It was very, really inefficient, too, even at the biological level. I mean, shouldn't we simply just be able to kind of grab hold of another creature and, you know, put our face on theirs and just let it... <laughs> I mean, language, it's, it's so, so subjective, and so much is lost the second we even translate our own thinking into speech, and then we don't know what the other horrible person is doing. But it's also hear. part of the process by which the thoughts happen, and you must feel, right. you must observe this as a writer, that you don't, you know, you find stuff emerging on the page yes. that you didn't know it was in your head, but it's part of, part of that way, part of that process of communicating with the page, with yourself, yes. reading back what you've done, with your imagined reader, whoever, is the process by which thoughts come into being. Which is what I possibly love the most about writing is, are those days when you discover things you did not know you thought or felt mm -hmm. because everything else seems old and boring and tired if you've thought it before you become exhausted by it but something about putting words together I, I, I tend to see it uh, again I'm going to mix a lot of metaphors here but I, I see it as a kind of uh, almost an archaeological tool that the sentence is is a tool that will, if it's arranged properly and followed by the right sentence or preceded by the right sentence, etc., will create a kind of a pathway into some space that I have not yet found myself. And whether that mm. space is going to be suitable for sharing, this is another matter. But, mm. um, but it does seem to work that way, uh, a technique of excavating something. Mm. Thank you. But also, um, I think language has a very visual component as well. So whilst we think in words, um, well, that's one component of thinking. Many people think in pictures, or they create images and then uh, translate that into words. And your book is very visual, the language in your book. Um, moving on to Charles, uh, your excerpt from A Box of Birds really conjures up um, the conundrum we were talking about before, about um, when we know the findings in science, in neuroscience, and how the brain works, and sort of deconstructing it down to a very concrete level, um, how does that influence people in terms of their behavior? If, if all we are are cells and genes, how does that change how we behave, how we um, live our lives, knowing that we can be deconstructed to that, and is there more? And we were talking about how there is more. Mm. So I wondered if you could speak a little bit about that, how, the, how can science influence behavior? And if it's not influencing behavior, how useful is it? It has to change things. I think that, that the, uh, the neuroscientific materialism that I've um, described has to change the way we function. I can't see how it cannot do so, but you know, do, where is the evidence that it is doing so? Where is this, we are absorbing this stuff as a culture. You know, we're lapping up neuroscience. We can't get enough of it. We're using it in everyday language. The popular media, the, the newspapers are full of it. But is it really profoundly, profoundly shifting our understanding of ourselves as a species? And I, I like to compare it to two other paradigm shifts in our understanding that happened over the last hundred years or so. Firstly, Darwinism. Uh, and secondly, psychoanalysis, which, both of which really did change stuff. I mean, they changed the way we understand ourselves. That then permeated popular culture, permeated fiction, and we can all think of great literary examples that were influenced by Darwinism and psychoanalysis. My question is, is the same thing going to happen with neuroscience? I don't think it's happening yet. There are signs that something's going on, um, particularly in relation to 
uh, abnormal psychology. So people are using packing novels with neuroscience about somebody with Tourette's, somebody with schizophrenia, um, and so on. But in terms of regular everyday thinking, there's not a huge amount of neuroscience in. I'm not saying that it, there should be. I'm just curious to know what, what is going on, because if it really is a paradigm shift, it should start emerging. So my hunch about this is that actually fiction is a really good way of testing out what sorts of explanations we want for ourselves and testing out the limits of neuroscientific explanations because ultimately we might find that these explanations don't find their way into literature. Novelists don't put neuroscience into fiction because it doesn't work. It doesn't work as a way of explaining our experience. It leads to a description of experiences which is way too complicated, way too removed from our ordinary experience. I think neuroscience also has a particular problem with motivations and you know as a novelist we constantly want to know why are our characters doing what they're doing? Why? What's making them tick? What's driving them? Psychoanalysis did that so well you know it's so easy to, to create a psychoanalytical um, turmoil which, which drives a character to do stuff and the same thing to a certain extent with Darwinism. I don't know whether neuroscience will be so good at that. So it's a kind of wait and see. Let's have a look in 10 years' time, 20 years' time. What, will there be a lot of neuroscience and fiction? Well, yeah, a follow-up question I would have for you is that when you think of Freudianism, it essentially gave everyone permission to sift through every single thought and feeling they had about everything. And, and you, you see that happening in literature where the inner life of characters is given this immense architecture and scrutiny and in a way it appeals to a narcissistic or at least a sentimental sense of our own importance, the importance mm. of what goes on inside our, 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 our minds. And do, is, is there a challenge then with neuroscience which with its latest discoveries, the, they'd seem to be much, much less sentimental and self-serving and, and indeed maybe not even acknowledging the self as we see it. And so. How does that come up against the novel's, let's say, uh, you know, mandate to, to, to represent the human by saying, you know, well, what, what you thought was, was human yeah. is, is irrelevant. Yeah. Um, it, it's, it's, a, it's a very interesting question and challenge, I think, going forward. So, the, yeah, this, this is what I mean by, you know, how we can tell from through fiction, through the process of writing and reading fiction, how good these explanations are. Because if they're not good enough for the novelist, I don't think they'll be good enough for us. I don't think we'll use them. I don't think we'll talk about ourselves in that way. I don't think we'll experience our own experience in that way if they don't give us a good, usable account of what's going on for us. You know, I personally don't think in terms of, you know, when something, um, when, when I'm talking to you now, I don't think in terms of my right temporoparietal junction firing and computing what you're thinking about. But that's what the neuroscience is telling us. It's telling us that that bit of the brain is doing some stuff when I think about what you're thinking. I don't think in those... You know, I, I think about your thoughts and beliefs. I think about my thoughts and beliefs. So I tell a psychological story, yeah. not a neuroscientific one. And those two things need to be separated. And thinking about that separation and testing science, how can we test science, or specifically neuroscience, in fiction? How would you envisage that? I, I would say just by seeing what happens when people... I don't think we should all rush to write books packed full of neuroscience. I think ultimately the, 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 the novel comes first. 
And ultimately, what I'll try to do with this book, actually, if you, you know, you'll, you'll find there isn't a huge amount of neuroscientific detail in there. It's, it, it is shaped by a particular approach to mind, but it's not packed full of descriptions of nerve cells firing, thank God. I think it would make a pretty dreadful fiction if it, if it were. It has to work, and ult, you know, the ultimate task of the, um, the novel, I think, is twofold. It has to be about experience. It has to be about the Bob Dylan question, how does it feel? What is it like to be a person? Fiction will never be obviated by science. Fiction will always be important because it is so damn good at answering the Bob Dylan question. How does it feel? How, you know, what is it like to be a person in this context at this time? So that's one thing that the novel will always do brilliantly, better than anything else. It will do subjectivity. And the second thing is that the novel has to be moral. It has to be about what's good and bad, what's right and wrong, what, you know, the choices that people make. And if neuroscientific explanations can't keep up with that in the way that you know, Darwinism and psychoanalysis at least have a seat at the table in that question, then I don't think it will really function that well in fiction. And, and my hunch is that if it doesn't work in fiction, it doesn't work for us more generally. You know, I think writers are kind of barometers of, public, of our understanding of ourselves. And, um, I just want to touch on for a moment your other book, uh, Pieces of Light, because that uh, conveys quite complex scientific concepts through narrative um, in ways that are quite easy to understand. So there were stories, each chapter is a story or an experience that you may have had conveying really very not the, the new idea about memory, which is it's not a static trace uh, held somewhere in our brain but it's dynamic, it's fluid. We remember what we recall, and every time we recall something, we actually remember the recalled version. Um, so th I thought that was, there's an emerging trend in literary science to convey these complex uh, scientific concepts through story, because story is something we can all relate to, and it's something we can easily remember, whereas the hard-cut scientific um, relaying of science findings is much harder to, to follow. Um, I wondered if you could speak a little bit. Yeah, I'd mean, say a, a, a couple of things in relation to that. Firstly, the science of human experience has got to be about subjectivity, partially. You can't get it all by just looking at what nerve cells are doing or by looking at behaviour. You've got to ask people what's, especially in, in memory, which you work on, you've got to, memory is fundamentally subjective. You've got to ask people what their stories are. Um, the second thing there is a, is a kind of, Will, will probably sound a bit pretentious, but I, I'm interested to know whether science writing can be a genre, a literary genre. You know, is, it, is it just about imparting information? Is it just about getting stuff across? Or can it be more than that? Can it go further than that? Can it be, can it be art? I'm very interested to know what, what you think, Ben, because there's so, you, do, you deal with science so well. Is, 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 do you like reading about science? And do you think that... that you know, writing about science can be a literary genre in that sense that I've described. I absolutely think it can, and uh, I, I I love reading what what you would probably consider, you know, popular science. But um, you know, books about physics for people like me with one brain cell, and um, I, I I really do enjoy. <sighs> I, I enjoy reading work that doesn't require too much advanced training, and 
And so, you know, and, and in fact, I liberally steal from these kinds of books because I have no, I have no responsibility to the, the truth when it, when it comes to something scientific. And, you know, in, in my book, I think what, what interested me was how, um, how someone who was struggling would become a scientist out of nothing, out of nowhere, with, with no skills and only the desperation of, you know, a father can feel. How, how you when, when you, when the experts in your world are either discredited or gone, how you step up into that role. And so I've always loved the role of expertise in culture, whether it's a scientist or a doctor or a a teacher, the person who presumes to know, and how that knowledge is transmitted. Um, we were talking earlier about Borges. Borges was one of the first writers I read who so consistently could get me to believe things that weren't true. Just a, he's just traffics in one insanity after the other, but it's delivered in a deadpan, cold, technical way. Um, he, he writes in a genre we might call an essay because with, with exceptions, there aren't really characters. The, the, the brief of the writing is to introduce an idea and then elaborate on it and persuade about it. And so that would be an essayistic um, urge. And so I like writing that does that. I like writing that's, that's argumentative. Um, it, it, it seems like, just as in literature, a lot of scientific writing is just terrifically boring. I'm not sure, you know, I, I, I don't know that literature is inherently more interesting. Um, but uh, I see no reason why it can't be a, a literary genre. And, you know, it's, it doesn't seem that just because you've, you've got little characters moving around on a chessboard that makes it necessarily more interesting. But in a way, what Sam is doing when he's making drugs in his kitchen is what the early scientists would have done. They'd have said, you know, we're fed up of being told the way the world works. Yeah. Let's, let's find out how the world works and do this crazy, what would have been perceived as crazy experiments. I know, you know, oh, for the early days when we didn't need to go to school and we all just went into our backyards, I guess we wouldn't have backyards, and just you look at the sky and say, okay, something, <laughs> something just happened mm. and now we're here. And I, I've always loved that, that, that real primal set of questions we can have about why we're here, where we came from, and what we're supposed to do now, what we're supposed to do with each other. Why are there so many of us? Why not just me? Uh, what do I do about you and everything you seem to be wanting to do? Uh, these, are, these, you know, these, these are intensely complicated questions, and universities have arisen, essentially, to foster the pursuit of these questions, but I always have felt a, a kind of, there's a kind of sadness around how specialized a lot of these great questions become. They become so specialized, and if you really want to learn what the smartest people are thinking, you can't just read it overnight or in a year or two years. I mean, you really have to essentially narrow into this very specific place for a long time. Uh, and so there's something appealing to me about that space when the biggest questions are kind of fair game for, for anybody. And maybe I'm just secretly hoping, hoping that, that I, as a semi-ignorant person, could actually play a role in you know, chasing down some of these questions. I, I studied philosophy in college, and my first year we read 
Aristotle and, and Plato and um, Lucretius and just this terrific stuff. By the end of the, the course, or you know, however you refer to it, by the third year, we were really just doing math. And this was philosophy. We were just doing math. And I don't mean to disparage that, but I, I lost my sense of wonder with all of it. And while I saw other people have their sense of wonder ignited further, which was, was really terrific for them, uh, but I found myself being pushed further from what had drawn me to it in the first place, which I think is what, you know, it, fiction is this sort of default place to fall into when you don't have any other expertise, but you still care about these, these big questions. So, um, you know, it's a sort of a long, ham-handed answer about that, but uh, you're right that everywhere in the book are essentially neophytes playing at, at, at expertise and having terrible results. He's not a very good scientist, is he? It's also what parents do, right? We, you know, well, that's what I've done. <laughs> you have, yeah, you have, a, you have a line that um, something like, fatherhood is just another word for failure. <laughs> you know, if you admit it, then maybe you're just a little step towards recovery. But, but to, you know, to me, for all the scientific questions in the book, I, I found that I... I wanted to to keep the story grounded in something very personal and a question of, of really severe anguish of what, what to do with our own children and how how best to how best to raise them, what role we're really meant to play, and then what to do if they're really a threat to us. Um, so I, I you know, I, my second kid had just been born and. The notion of <clears throat> ever, let's say, willingly leaving my kids was was so far away, so remote, and so abhorrent, and so unpleasant that I I had to write a novel about it. I mean, it was a sort of way to invert and do the thing that I found least comprehensible. Mm. In some sense, that's sometimes how I try to start a book: is to not feel comfortable, rather the reverse. And 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 it did in, it did involve these you know questions of children and. Um, the power they have over us, and you know the, the the fear we have that we will, you know, somehow not take care of them mm. in the way that we should or we think we should. The, the book is surprisingly tender about relationships in in several ways. One is the fact that even though Esther, the daughter, is utterly toxic, she's a regular teenage kid. You know, she she slams doors and and answers back, but she still needs. You know, a hug. She needs to know yeah. that her parents are there, and it's it's heartbreaking the way that this relationship is forced to break down. But it's also a beautifully tender account of a marriage, um, and in many you know, at the, at the heart of the book really is is um, Sam's love for his wife Claire, and ultimately that is the driver of of the narrative. But of course, love <clears throat> is a language of its own. Yeah. As, as well, so you're almost talking, you know, you've got another, there's another kind of language in there, isn't there, which yeah. isn't toxic. Yeah, I, I, I have a, a few thoughts about that. You know, on the one hand, this is not a perfect family at the beginning of the book. They, they have a language problem before there's a language problem, that they don't understand each other, they traffic in sort of familial hate speech. They, they really can run each other down and ignore each other. They can do all, all these crimes of language we all do to our 
loved ones all the time. Um, th it's already happening. And so the crisis, while normal and domestic, then, then becomes far worse. But to me, I think I never wanted to simply write a mad scientist book about someone in a world where language is poisonous who goes to a lab and invents new languages and tests them on subjects who wither under the, you know, uh, under the new languages. And I, 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 I thought it, was, it would feel much more uncanny and strange if, if there was a very real family and their own sort of pain at the heart of it. You know, when I was growing up, the model of literature in America in the 80s, if you went to college, was, it was very family-based. I mean, really, almost all the fiction one read was about some problem in the family. Some, someone was misunderstood. Um, you know, there's, it, it, it's such a paradigm that I felt, I, f I felt very uncomfortable with it, but also completely defined by it. And I, I spent a lot of time trying to write as far away from any of that autobiographical territory that I could to try to invent and invent and invent as much as I could. Um, and then if, you know, when people reacted to it, they said, well, it's cold and inhuman. It has no people in it. It has no life. It's simply your twisted mind. Uh, and where's the human story? And so I always, I think, felt somehow driven to take my natural imaginative interests and force them into something that almost seems normatively domestic, because then that seemed even more uncomfortable to me. So, uh, So your process of writing was to discover something deeply uncomfortable, and then that was the driving force for this particular. Yeah, I think so. I think so. Uh, to, to essentially begin on the first page and the first line with a crisis, and as the pages go by to make that crisis worse. I, that was, I thought that's what a plot was. <laughs> I thought, well, that's a plot. It's bad, and then you have to keep making it worse. But it has to be plausibly worse, because it can't just be meteors shooting out of the sky, although there's nothing wrong with that. Um, you know, people can't just fall over and die. They have to die for a reason. And then if they die, there has to be someone who loves them so that someone cares about that death. And so you know, suddenly, that just looked like the, the way one was supposed to write a book. And I'm not sure how I feel about that now. Um, but yes, I, I, I thought, you know, calamity times n, or I, I'm not sure what the math would be, but it, it just seemed that the, the, the problem had to escalate. Okay. Charles, what was your driving force for a box of birds? Just the interest in, in exploring this idea about materialism ultimately you know I, I saw something going on in the science um, and I thought this has got to be explored you know this this is potentially really important and the way it, it made sense for me to do it because it's about subjectivity and it because it's about whether this stuff changes anything I mean for example you know we'd be neuroscientists are telling us that there's no such thing as free will we're also kind of determined by a chain of neural events that that we have no control over. I mean, I don't actually believe that, but that's what a lot of people believe. That, that really is going to change some stuff. If that's true, if you believed that, if you thought you had no free will. So I thought, you know, what if you had a character who didn't believe in free will because of the stuff she's read? What's she going to do? And that's where the fun starts. And so I think my character makes decisions that 
other people wouldn't make. You know, her philosophy actually changes what she does, and that's the very exciting thing about exploring this kind of thing in fiction. Okay, I'm going to ask one final question before we open it up to the floor. Um, we see science and fiction in literature, and I'm interested in both of your thoughts on how fiction might influence science or change science. So some of the ideas we chatted about um, earlier. First? Well, I, I would and say I'll just picture. repackage what you say in, <laughs> in a new language. <laughs> there isn't. I mean, I, I absolutely love science. I'm a huge fan of science. I don't think it's the only way of knowing. It's probably the best way of knowing if you want to have to be cured of a disease or build a bridge or, or a spaceship. It's definitely the best way of knowing. Um, but it's not the ultimate. And I, and I resist. I'm a huge fan of literature and the arts and, and humanities. And I resist. The, the maybe a subconscious, maybe an implicit urge to reduce to science, to, to convert everything into science. So the flow isn't all about science taking what it can from art to make science better. I think science can learn something from art. I think fiction, as I've tried to explain, I think fiction can be a way of exploring different explanations for behaviour. And we can learn something about how good these scientific explanations are going to be by looking at how they function in fiction. And that's a, that's a fairly wacky uh, view to, to have. But I think at least in this specific instance, it, is, it does hold. What I love about fiction is that its direct utility can't be stated or calculated. That, that, that's what I think makes it enduring and so vital to us is we, we can't say, well, we do it just, just for this reason. It has this practical application. But I think a good novel exposes us to the intricacies of being alive, which turns out to be quite hard to do. It's, it's, it's quite hard to find um, an artistic experience that can really resonate deeply and that, that we can connect to that, that shows us things about ourselves we, we hadn't yet suspected, hadn't yet discovered. And I think we might argue that literature has always been influencing science only because it contributes to the world. It contributes to our sense of who we are. Scientists do other things other than science and read books, and these books inform the work that they do. Um, my father's a mathematician, and his education was, aside from mathematics, largely liberal arts-based, and he said he read more novels in college than at any other time. And to him, he feels that Reading novels, I mean, he's a great fan of the Russians and just the, the big, episodic, epic, conflict-driven, um, moral, ethically rich books like that are by far the most nourishing for his mind. And then he sits down and does his work. I don't think we need to say, well, what exactly has crime and punishment done to make him possibly a slightly better mathematician? But, but we need to notice that works like that really do enrich the lives, the selves, the souls of, of people who care about important questions and might pursue them scientifically. That to me is, is evidence that it's, that it's already happening. I, I don't know of a fiction writer who's systematically setting out to influence science, although that would be kind of an interesting <laughs> challenge. Maybe, uh, maybe there should just be, you know, a like a reality show where fiction writers each 
So you get 10 of them, and their job is to actually make an impact on science. <laughs> Not as entertaining as some of the other shows out there, but um, I, I think it's already happening. Okay, um, I'd like to open um, up to questions for our authors. Yes? Uh, just a, a comment on, on determinism free will. It's not just for the individual, but worldwide religion and the existence of God. But my particular question is if language does something to the brain, then psychoanalysis and psychotherapy uses language to enter and change the, the brain. So that means that there would be molecular changes in the brain? And if so, would there be alternative methods of psychoanalysis, like electrodes across the brain? I've heard of something called transcranial stimulation, I think. Millivolt electrodes in the brain passing current through can cure things like anxiety. Do you have any comments on that? I'd like to try it. <laughs> uh, do you know about that? I, I can talk about well, it. Well, um, I would just say very briefly, there's, in, I think, in, in maybe implicitly in what you're saying, there's an assumption that the neuroscientific level of explanation is the ultimate, the ultimate truth. Now, I'm changing your brain now by talking to you, but in, in ways that may be permanent, may, may not. They'll be permanent, hopefully, if you remember this event, which I hope you all do. Um, but what does that actually tell us? What is that, how, how useful is that? Is you, we, we can do science at other levels as well. We can do science at the personal and sub-personal levels, at the levels of how the whole self feels, the levels of beliefs, changing beliefs in cognitive behaviour therapy and so on. And my, my hunch is that that's going to continue to be very useful. Having said that, TMS, as it's known, is potentially, I don't know, you know more about the anxiety disorders. I know the, the, the disorders that I am interested in, particularly um, psychosis, uh, the evidence is not very strong for TMS working. But um, The evidence uh, for anxiety and depression with TMS isn't very strong either. Um, but we have done an enormous number of studies looking at how the brain changes uh, before and after uh, cognitive behavioral therapy, which works specifically with people's thoughts and how it influences their feelings, and what brain changes happen at the end of treatment. And we see changes in the brain after CBT for anxiety and depression, which are um, greater than changes with antidepressants, and they're longer lasting uh, as well. So there isn't going to be a lot of widespread national support for TMS, for the anxiety disorders, because we already have an effective evidence-based treatment that's already available and easily accessed. Okay, there's a question here. Um, this is a question about the way that science functions. Um, science uses thought experiments frequently uh, as an integral part of its process, and these are experiments that you can't actually carry out in the real world, but they're very important, such uh, Schrodinger's cats is probably a sort of best-known example. Um, do you or could you see fiction as, uh, as a thought experiment? You kind of, uh, sort of alluded to the fact that fiction operates in ways similar to science. Could you see fiction as simply a way of doing an experiment on the real world in a scientific manner? It's funny because 
some writers refer to their fiction as thought experiments already, and some are more comfortable using the language experimental, which in fiction is very unlike what it means in science. It usually just means a lots of people won't like it. Um, and it will be reviewed in the <laughs> So, uh, but, but, I, but I think the reasons that drive people to write fiction are, are, are immensely diverse, and, and I certainly know of writers who, who think much more explicitly in those terms. They, they want to test things out. There are, I, I don't know how it works over here, at least in the States, there are lots of subcultures of science fiction some concerned only with a certain kind of uh, you know a certain kind of spaceship apparatus and very very specific so, some are very uh, interested in uh, verifiability so so what whatever they invent has to be really plausible has to be based on inventions that exist now uh, but 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 others are, are quite interested, in fact, in doing what might be called fictional science, sort of um, inventing solutions, uh, obviously without any of the scientific work, because they're, they're doing it on the page with language. But they seem to have scientific imaginations, but I don't, I don't want to say minus the work ethic. It's just, it's just different. It's just sort of a different, they have a different way of releasing that ima imagination into the world. So I think this is actually out there quite a bit, um, albeit in a kind of a subculture. I'll just add to that, that even in the most conventional kind of fiction, you, you, I get a feeling when I'm doing it, of doing a kind of experiment, and you create some characters and you stick them in that wind tunnel and you see how they react and that how they are shaped, how events change them and then how that changes their reaction to events and so on. So in that sense, yeah. the metaphor, uh, I mean, maybe it's more like engineering than it is like science, but, it, but there's, there, there are some very important commonalities there. Thank you. Can we have um, more questions right here? Um, there seems to be an ongoing concern for our young people that they're getting increasingly worse at literature, maths and science, if you read the media, um, government reports, emphasis on targets and so on. Uh, and One of my readings is that there's uh, a desire to split it up to improve their competency and these get better at these things individually. Are we missing an opportunity to explore the links between literature and science in a way that might benefit their curiosity? <clears throat> no question. Uh, again, I'm 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 from another place, but where I live, I, I I I'm often disheartened by the lack of opportunity committed imaginative teachers have to explore their ideas with the right kind of funding, the right kind of institutional, government, state support, so that they can recognize the particular challenges that we have with kids now and to come up with v vigorous, challenging, sort of effective education. So uh, I, I'm sure so much, so much more can be done. But um, you know, what, what I see a lot is this just desire to push kids towards a certain test score. Uh, and it, it, it overlooks a lot of possibility. You know, it, it seems, it, it's interesting for me because uh, 
I, I'm the parent of, of two little kids, and what excites me the most uh, when I see them come home from school is 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 the more abstract stuff, the stuff that they can that doesn't seem specific or let's say fact-based, like they didn't learn what eight times four was, but, but they, they, they learned some model of counting that they can apply to a, a whole bunch of other things. I mean, this is a rudimentary idea of in, uh, in education, but when something stimulates them then to ask 10 more questions, then I think, oh, that's, that's, that's a good education because suddenly they're curious. They're, they're not simply just having to memorize something. but. Um, you know, the United States government, anyway, seems just not to care about this at all, in any way that I can see, in terms of any kind of public support. So, again, I don't know how, how things are over here, but it it it, it would look like a, a great opportunity that's being missed from my perspective. Charles, yeah, I'd I'd, I'd back that up. I mean, there's some some great books for kids that sort of talk about science in a narrative way and it's great to see books like Stephen Hawking's book with his daughter. My kids are reading, have read it um, and so there's definitely something that can be done there. Yes, in the second one. Uh, I'm very interested by your references to Darwinism and psychoanalysis. Um, they began life as, as rather deterministic theories, of course. They were more about an order of causes than an order of reasons, which is the distinction you made, uh, Doctor. But bit by bit, they become assimilated. Um, Darwinism becomes oddly teleological. You get those uh, sequential uh, uh, charts of, of fish turning straight into into Homo sapiens as if that were the end and goal implicit all along. And, and uh, psychoanalysis, in Britain at least, um, left off its mechanism and, and became an account of, uh, sort of rational actions carried out, albeit unconsciously in fantasy. They started out deeply inassimilable to the order of reasons and to possible narrative and so on and so on, but they became assimilated. And I wonder whether you think, for example, that, that neuroscience can submit to a similar anthropomorphism and if it can whether that's too great a price to pay for for um, becoming integrable with fiction because when something like a, a material science of causes one of the hard sciences becomes infested with um, a discourse of reasons and and so on and so on I wonder how reductive it is and how useful it is you know analytically maybe the 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 greatest thing would be for it to remain outside novels and continue to outrage our sense of, of ourselves and fail entirely to flatter you know the idea that we are and ourselves and have presence and and you know are subjective and so on i don't know i think that, does that count as a question That's yeah no I, I think we're living in very very interesting times i mean i don't know if you've ever sat in a room with a bunch of cognitive neuroscientists um who I ha have huge amounts of respect for. They're some of the cleverest people I know. But you do hear them talking in terms of the brain, brain areas having, you know, beliefs and motivations. You hear them talking along the line. I don't know if you've heard this, Jennifer, but, you know, they'll say, you know, the superior temporal gyrus is interested in auditory stimuli. And it's lovely. You know, it's lovely. I think it, you know, it betrays their deep interest in, this, in these processes. But that, you know, giving the... With the book on memory, I wanted to push, you know, the, the hippocampus is the bit of the brain that, that is the big um, prime mover in memory. And I wanted to 
try something different in, in approaching this topic. It's, you know, the hippocampus has been written about loads and loads, and it's in, incredibly important, and it's, it's been really well covered. I thought, let's do, let's do something different. So can I put myself in the, in the point of view of the hippocampus? Can I imagine what it is like to be the hippocampus? Hopeless. It didn't, it didn't go anywhere. So my attempts to kind of anthropomorphize the brain were useless. And maybe a more creative writer would be able to do something with it. But <clears throat> it's interesting that writers can do, play that same trick with all sorts of other things. I've seen novels written by Grecian urns. <coughs> I've seen novels narrated by shopping trolleys. But somehow I can't, I personally couldn't make that jump to say take a sub-region of the brain and try to imagine its consciousness. I don't think it has one for a start. So, but you know, I think these are very interesting times and quite how neuroscience will be assimilated. We need to s sit and watch, I think. I think, uh, I think that's right. <laughs> these are very interesting times. Um, we're coming to the end of the hour. I don't know if you'd like to take one more question um, before we wrap up yet. Okay. Yep. Is that all right? Yep, OK. So one more question. I'm interested in what you think of books about that are a kind of science fiction and a subcult that you were talking about, the alternative history, the sort of the steampunk, the what would have happened if someone didn't get shot on that day, because they tend to rewrite about 50 years of the scientific process that you're talking about now, but using characters constructed yeah. in our world. What do you think about that kind of parallelism and alternative reality? I'm totally opposed to it. <laughs> <laughs> Just shouldn't be done. It's, you know, it, it's, uh, it's, it's so fascinating and it's what I love so much about fiction is, is that ability to go back and forth like that and to, to reimagine. I think it really speaks to our curiosities too that these books have, have been so appealing. Uh, it's, it's fascinating to wonder from different points of history this, this, this sort of what if question, what if this hadn't happened and what if this had? And I think it, it's also turned out to be a, an incredibly rich territory for, for narrative. Uh, you know, it's, it'd be nice to not see it strictly as a territory of, of science fiction per se, or, you know, I, and I am only less and less sure what these genre boundaries really are anymore anyway. But uh, I, I, I love the idea and I, 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 I love the liberty that someone can feel to you know, go back and pursue questions from, from that point. I would just add that it's exhilarating when you come across a writer like Ben who's, in, who's inventing a new science and not just a new pharmacology but a new physics and chemistry and psychology and it all fits together. It is totally not based in our reality but you, you are led to believe in this world that doesn't exist, that fits together in a way that our world doesn't fit together. And it's exhilarating. That's the only, only way I can describe it. Something I, thank you, Charles, that's very interesting. Something I would add, though, to this question, I think going back in time and revising is, is in a way, much harder. You know, when, when we write the future as, as fiction writers, in some sense, we're, we're, we're working in that same kind of dark, unknown space. But to go back to a certain time and, and start making distortions is to very regularly court 
the expectations and familiarity of your reader who is going to expect something else and something else and something else. And so to risk that reaction from a reader over and over again, I think, is, is, is quite difficult. And when, when I contemplate doing it, it seems, it seems really formidable to, to take that on. So it gives me a lot of respect for people who can do that. OK, thank you. And thank you. On that note, um, we're going to call this debate to a close. I'd like to give great thanks to Ben Marcus and Charles Fernihoe. Um, ben Marcus, The Flame Alphabet, and Charles's uh, new book, A Box of Birds, is forthcoming and will be published by Unbound. And thank you very much. More podcasts, videos, and live recordings of author events can be found at www.edbookfest.co.uk.